You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, family. Uh, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. If uh, we have not met, I'm one of the ministers here at Citizens Church. Uh, if this is your first time gathering with us, we're so glad you chose uh, to worship with us this morning. If you are visiting us via the stream, we are glad that you are here as well. Um, we are continuing in our Wisdom and Wonder series, and this morning I want to answer uh, a question together with you all. Um, and that question that's going to guide our, our kind of conversation for the rest of the morning is how does a person enjoy the life God has given them to live under the sun? How does a, how does a person enjoy the life God has given them to live under the sun? Uh, under the sun is a common description uh, of life on earth, right, on this side of eternity in Ecclesiastes. And by that, it means this, right, this physical, uh, broken, and yet in some ways beautiful world uh, that we live in. And there's a, a single word that kind of encapsulates this kind of complex idea about life under the sun that Ecclesiastes uses often, um, and it's Hevel. If you remember back to uh, last spring when we were kind of walking through um, this book a little bit with uh, Jamin, he talked about how uh, Hevel, the way the book talks about it is, it's like a fog or it's, um, it's like mist and a vapor. It, 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 we can't quite get a grip on it. It is elusive and unpredictable. Um, and so our question this morning Right? In a world that is full of that, that is constantly eluding us, constantly slipping through our fingertips, where things uh, aren't always uh, easily grasped, uh, how does a person find joy in life amongst the heaven? Now, um, if you were to set out to write a sermon about joy, like if that was your goal, you got invited to a conference or a preaching opportunity, and they said, hey, your topic is joy. Um, this passage maybe that we just read maybe isn't the first one uh, that comes to mind. And probably because the book of Ecclesiastes isn't the first book to come to mind. You know, you maybe are thinking, you know, why not Philippians or one of Paul's letters? He seems to talk about uh, joy a lot. Um, but the wisdom that Ecclesiastes offers us in this passage that we're going to look at this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, it guards us from missing out on what true enjoyment looks like in this life. And it, it also steers us away from the kinds of enjoyment that are actually bad for us uh, in the long run. How does it do that? I'll give you the answer now, and then we'll unpack it as we walk through the verses. Um, so if the, the question we ask of Ecclesiastes is, how does a person enjoy the life God has given them under the sun? Ecclesiastes answers, uh, true joy is found in a life that is given to what matters most. True joy, the kind of joy that's not bad for us, is found in a life that is given uh, to what matters most. In Proverbs 17, 6, it says, uh, gray hair is a crown of glory, and it is gained in a righteous life. Um, if you are uh, of the few and the proud amongst the room uh, who have been blessed with long enough years to accumulate gray hair, I just want to tell you on behalf of your church family, we love you. Um, you are so precious um, and dear uh, to, our, to our church and to our gathering. Um, and I also just want to thank you in particular uh, for being uh, patient with 
uh, young, young ministers such as myself. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers and pastors, his name is H.B. Charles Jr. Uh, he succeeded pastoring his, uh, the church his father led after his father passed at the age of 27, um, which was how old I was when I came on staff here. And uh, I remember listening, he was, he was being interviewed about a number of things, but he talked about kind of that process. And one of the things he said about his congregation, because a lot of the people that he led had, uh, were, were many years his senior, but he said the, the church that, that, I, that I inherited, they, they allowed me to grow and develop um, as a preacher and pastor. And in so many ways, they um, helped him become the preacher and pastor that he is. And I just remember thinking, like, what a gift um, that, that, that that is, that there really is the, like a relationship um, that happens there. And you all have been that and do that for me in so many ways. Um, but I bring all of that up because the, the wisdom um, that, that those who have lived more life um, than you hold um, is, a tr- is a treasure. Uh, I know some of you, you know, kind of may shrug, shrug that off and think like, well, I might have lived a long time, but I don't know if I've lived the life that's, that's full of wisdom to, to give to somebody. And um, regardless of the successes and failures, though, in life, um, because you have the, the advantage of a vantage point that can look back even over the successes, even over the failures, um, there's just a way that that wisdom carries a weight and is so um, invaluable uh, to those of us who have not made it there yet. Um, give you an example. Uh, Jim Carrey, who's prominently known as being a pretty funny guy, uh, also uttered some really, really powerful words. Um, I remember reading uh, just a, a blurb in an article And he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see that it's not the answer. Now, if I said that, people could rightly probably shrug me off because I don't know anything about being rich or famous. Um, Right, like nothing, nothing at all. But coming from him, somebody who's been where you've been and maybe has crossed over that threshold, he has got the the riches, he did get the fame, he did uh, accomplish his goals and to stand on the other side and the wisdom that he has to give back is like, yeah, I wish you could go through that too so then you could see that it's not the answer, that it's not, maybe it's not worth all of the toil that you might give it if you knew what was on the other side of it. And it's that kind of wisdom that we find in our passage this morning. Uh, The preacher in Ecclesiastes speaks uh, from the position of having a life that was long lived and has discovered some of the the hevel that's not worth chasing after in life. And he's looking back um, and speaking to uh, a young person and is encouraging them to enjoy life um, and to, to, you know, grab it by the horns and take it to the full, but to do so in a way that's not bad, where you don't waste your life on the hevel. And so I have two points this morning, and both of them sound kind of counterproductive to experiencing joy, but Ecclesiastes, right, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to help us see uh, that understanding these two things are important um, in living life under the sun in a way that you'll give yourself to the things that matter most. And those those two important realities that we must grasp uh, before we can get to true joy is that life under the sun, right, this life that we live uh, this life is ambiguous. Um, we don't quite, right? It's that, that vanity that's that slipping through our fingertips. It doesn't always work how we think. Um, and life is painful, um, sometimes for a moment, sometimes for a long time. Uh, but these two things are vital for us to, to understand how to, how to get to true joy uh, in the midst of the heaven. Sounds fun, right? Um, but we're going to do it together. So, you know, 
strap up. Uh, Here we go. Look at verses 1 through 5 in Ecclesiastes 11 with me. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, uh, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what the spirit come, how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Uh, in terms of narrative arc, this section of Ecclesiastes is like the tail end of the falling action, right before the resolution in chapter 12. Uh, the preacher is wrapping up his sermon, um, and he is exhorting us uh, in just the, the past two chapters. He has exhorted uh, his readers to enjoy uh, life despite the inevitability of death. And then he's also uh, called them to avoid a lot of the common pitfalls that lead us towards the path of folly. And now here he begins to uh, expound about this ambiguous nature of life, and he begins by asking us to do something that feels pretty odd at first glance. In verse 1 he says, cast your bread upon the water, for you will find it after many days. Uh, anyone here ever like fed like ducks or geese in a pond or something before, right? You break the bread, throw it in a... When's the last time you did that and then came back to the pond and like a duck threw you a loaf of bread back? It was like... <laughs> Appreciate it. That was, that was, that was great. Um, probably never. If that has happened, I would love to hear about that after the sermon. Um, but that's right. That's, he's not literally talking about throwing the bread. Uh, it's an idiom, right? It's, it's kind of like when we say uh, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. It's a way that we uh, talk about, right? The sure thing that you have is more valuable than the like many that you maybe could get possibly, right? And while both of these uh, expressions are idioms, the irony is that they actually are saying the opposite thing. Uh, Cast your bread upon the waters is more like, hey man, shoot your shot. It might work. It might go well. Um, he's, He's calling us to do the unsure thing. And what's even stranger than that, that kind of exhortation uh, is the person that it's coming from. Like if this was our optimistic friend, Lady Wisdom from the book of Proverbs, that would feel more like on par. But this is the skeptical preacher of Ecclesiastes. Like why would he, why would he tell us to do something like that? And that that mixture of of tones gets even more strange in verse two. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, wait, you know, preacher, shouldn't, Shouldn't I save seven or maybe eight if disaster's coming? Uh, I, that doesn't feel like wisdom to, to give more portions uh, when I see a disaster on the way. Um, and as odd as this all is, surely you can begin to feel uh, the disruptive voice of the preacher again, challenging our viewpoint and our understanding of security and assurance in this life. Naturally, we might hear a text like this and our impulse is to rear back and say, no, I want to I make sure that, that things are, are settled and that things are safe before I cast my bread. Or like, I at least want to be sure that the odds are good, right? Like, I may, may not be 100%, but like an 85% assurance would at least be good. And the problem with that is the preacher has already shown us earlier in Ecclesiastes that life doesn't work that way under the sun. 
that we don't have that kind of a surety of outcomes um, under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 7:15, he says, in my heavenly life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In Ecclesiastes 9:18, he says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. You see, life under the sun is elusive and it's uncertain, even when you're doing it right. And he reminds us of the ambiguity of the outcomes in verses three through five in our text. It says that the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. In other words, you don't have as much control over the outcomes as you think you do, nor do I. Right? He says that, that a lot of this is out of our, out of our hands. What's going to happen is going to happen. In verses 4 through 5, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Okay, so we're supposed to cast our bread, even though we can't be sure that casting our bread is going to yield a gain for return, but why? Verses four through five, he spells it out. He says, the reason um, it is so essential for us to come to grips with the ambiguity of life in order to be able to enjoy life is because we will never give our lives to the things that matter most if we're always waiting on certainty of outcomes to act. If, if what's going to call us and get us to move to the things that matter most is to, to know for sure that it's going to work and everything's going to go according to plan and nothing's going to go wrong, he says, he who observes the wind will never sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap, right? The farmer who sits in his house and he watches the weather and he's like, oh, I don't know, it looks like it might rain or it might, I don't know if I should go out today. If he, if he perpetually lives with that kind of uh, disposition, not only will he never go out um, and, and sow uh, in his harvest, but he'll never even reap from his harvest. You see, uh, this, is, this is the wisdom that that the preacher is trying to expose to us. Now, you might be thinking to Marcus, are you telling us that it is uh, not wise to plan and to be calculated and to use sound judgment as we make decisions? No, that's not what I'm saying, nor is that what the text is saying. But in fact, the text is actually calling you to plan and to calculate as we maneuver through life. Only it's challenging you to plan that your calculations and plans might not always go according to plan, right? it's vital that your understanding of life under the sun has a, in the, you know, amidst the hevel has a category that even when I'm doing all the things right that I'm supposed to do, the outcomes can still be poor. And that reality shouldn't stop me from doing the good that I know I should do. The outcomes aren't sure. It's ambiguous under the sun. Okay. Uh, I promise this sermon is about joy. Uh, I know it doesn't feel like it yet, uh, but just hold on. Uh, we got one more uh, truth that the, the preacher wants us to see um, before, before that unfolds. Um, but we, we have to come to grips uh, with these things according, according to the word. And so in uh, verses uh, six through eight, we see not only is life ambiguous, but we also have to come to grips with the fact that life under the sun is painful um, for all people. Verse six, he says, in the morning, sow your seed and at evening, withhold not your hand 
for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or rather both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is heaven. Here again, we find the strange optimism of our skeptical friend. Uh, Sow your seeds in the morning and in the evening, which means at all times. Why? Again, because you don't know which will succeed, right? The outcomes are ambiguous. And he goes even further. And this, this next verse, every time I read it, I'm like, man, this, this doesn't even feel like the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were to just read this, not knowing where it came from, you're like, this sounds like a psalm or maybe like 1 John. Uh, right? It's, it's, it's so beautiful. He says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Life is good. It is, it is a blessing that God has, has given us life. Or as Jamin has um, said time and time again, life is a gift that God has given us to, to receive. And it's important that we hear that from our skeptical friend, the preacher, because otherwise we might fall um, into the trap of believing that what he's actually trying to teach us is to despise life. Right? If I'm honest, uh, before giving much study to this book, if you were to ask me, uh, what's Ecclesiastes about? And I'm like, oh, it's like life is awful, but good luck. Um, <laughs> and a cursory glance at it could feel that way, but there's so much more wisdom uh, in the book than that. And that's actually not what he's after. You see, the preacher doesn't despise life, but life has sobered him over the years. Right? Like he says, in my heavy life, I've seen everything. And, and so his wisdom has a way of exposing the heaven and it forces us to see it the way it really is. Right? That we have to come to grips with the complex realities of life that don't fit into maybe some of our cookie cutter categories that we want to have life in. And this is why he reminds the young in the passage we just read, but let them remember that the days of darkness will be many, right? He says, enjoy your life, all the days of it that God gives you, but, but remember, right? Like take heed that dark days are coming. It is important not to disjoin that as enjoyable and as sweet as life can be, it will also inevitably be painful at times and maybe even for a lot of time. One of the things I, I love about our God um, and his word that he's given us is he doesn't shy away from the difficult realities of life. The scriptures don't sugarcoat how hard and difficult life can really be. The psalmists often speak of their soul being in deep agony and despair. Paul talks of uh, being so downcast that he despaired of life itself. Um, and then he wrote in Romans that right, all of creation is groaning, like the, the pains from, from childbirth. And even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweats blood and water out of the agony of the suffering that awaits him on the cross. Pain is a real part of human life. Uh, and when Rome was sacked in 14 AD, uh, soon after the defeated Rome uh, started to blame the Christians or the pagans, as they called it, uh, for their defeat because they were worshiping another god. And uh, early church father, St. Augustine, uh, he writes in response to these allegations and many other things that they were saying about God and the believers. Um, and what's interesting is the way he refutes their accusations wasn't by like getting into this like blame war. Like they're like, it's your fault we lost. You're worshiping another God. He wasn't like, no, it's not. It's your fault because you're worshiping the wrong. God. Like he didn't. It's not what he writes about. 
Instead, he actually leans into what the preacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes, that there's a reality that suffering happens to everybody. Um, And look at what he writes. He says, and thus it is that in the same affliction, the wicked detest God and blaspheme, while the good pray and praise. So material a difference does it make, not what ills are suffered, but what kind of man suffers them. For stirred with the same movement, mud exhales a horrible stench, and ointment emits a fragrant odor. You see, the Christians in Rome were sacked just like the non-believers. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, and so do the dark nights of the soul. But it it matters less about the, the suffering that is felt in the one who endures the suffering believer. We have not been promised a painless life, but we have been promised a purposeful life. And everyone will be stirred in this life in one way or another at some point in time. And we need to know that purpose and joy and pain can coexist in the same life. And it doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong. Pain is a part of human life. Look at how the, the, the preacher brings uh, his, his thoughts to a close here in chapter 11. Um, look at verses 10, or 9 through 10. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are heaven. Again, the preacher exhorts the young to rejoice. Be cheerful. Enjoy your life. Walk in the ways of your heart, he even says, and in the sight of your eyes. Right? Uh, but we've been in wisdom for a while. Doesn't that sound contra to wisdom? Like, didn't we already learn from Proverbs that we shouldn't lean on our own understandings, that our, that our hearts aren't a good judgment of, of wisdom and what we should do, nor are our eyes and the things that we see? Absolutely. And this is why he gives the caveat, but know that all, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That we don't just get to live like absent of, of any kind of uh, standard, but we need to be reminded of that. Remember in the beginning, I said that uh, wisdom in these verses keeps us from missing out on enjoyment. And it also uh, guards us from the kinds of enjoyment that are bad for us. Uh, the latter we find here. The preacher is exhorting the young person to enjoy life and to be cheerful, but not in a way that is ultimately going to be bad for them and incur judgment. Here's the warning. Uh, If a full life of joy and cheer means to us a life that is void of pain, two pitfalls await us. One, we will be frustrated by the inevitable dark days that are surely to come. And or we will cling to cheap imitations of joy that make us happy in the moment but are bad for us in the long run. Brian Lee is a a pastor of a house church in China, and in one of his sermons that's published in a book called Faith in the Wilderness, he describes how we end up in these pitfalls. Uh, He calls it a a system of relational existence, which is essentially to say um, we we live in this this thing where the essence of of who we are and the way we uh, can think about ourselves is in relation to how we perform uh, with one another. So he says, if I perform well, I can make uh, and I make all the right moves and I do everything I'm supposed to, uh, then what I'll secure for myself is dignity and security and value and joy. 
Look at what he writes. He says, everyone seeks their value, their dignity, and security in relational existence. However, no matter what system one uses to seek the meaning and value of life, we can never find satisfaction and security. In such a value uh, system, such relational existence, we have all experienced a great deal of brokenness, fear, uncertainty, disappointment, entanglement, coercion, loss of control, etc. You see, the the two points uh, of wisdom here are tied together. What he's describing is a person who treats life as if it's not ambiguous, right? As if it uh, can be gamed and if we have the ability uh, to, to determine the outcomes. If I do this, then I can secure for myself happiness and comfort and security, um, and it'll end up that way. But just as we learned from Jim Carrey uh, uh, earlier, um, even if you do get all the things that you hope to get out of it, it still isn't enough. But what do we do when we don't achieve it, when our, when our efforts and our goals are frustrated uh, by life under the sun? Uh, typically, we resort to other methods of securing for ourselves happiness, comfort, and security that aren't good for us, right? It's like we, we try to manufacture uh, the joy and the security. It's like, you know, I, I think I can do it if I just work really hard and I accomplish my goals, and we, we seek out that path, and when we're frustrated, uh, the way we might satiate that appetite um, is by medicating the pain with substances or sex or money or or you name the vice, right? Or you name the way that we try to get to it. But what we give, what we do is we give ourselves to lesser things, things that are bad for our soul in order to satiate the desires of our flesh because our plans were frustrated. And this is why the preacher offers us one final exhortation in verse 10. He says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are heaven. Another way to render that word vexation, uh, maybe your translation says anger is frustration. And it is to point to that frustration that stirs up in the heart um, and the sorrow that comes from the expectations that we have in life because we haven't come to grips with its ambiguity and its painfulness. And so even the the good in life, the things that we should be able to rejoice and cheer over, they become marred uh, by the vexation of our unmet expectations. And then he calls us to remove pain from our body, uh, which the the word there is also the Hebrew word ra, uh, which we translate typically evil, but here it's pain. Um, and it's, it's removing essentially the, the false joys, right? The things that we think are going to secure for us a kind of joy and a kind of comfort and security. And actually, it only wreaks havoc on our souls because we try to gratify, uh, gratify our fleshly desires um, and, we, and, we, and we actually harm our inner being. And as one commentator put it, he says, that's because joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. So this is, this is the key to enjoying life under the sun, according to the preacher, right? We've got to come to grips with the ambiguity of life, that the outcomes aren't always sure. We need to know that uh, a painless life is not what we've been promised, and we have to come to grips with everybody is going to suffer pain under the sun in some way because we live in a fallen world. And once we can put those false expectations away and put away the fleshly desires that we often cling to um, as false joys, then we are able to to achieve and find true joy. Now, if I ended our sermon here, it'd be a short sermon, but it wouldn't be a good one. Because up until now, I've given you a lot of law and no gospel. 
Not only that, but the, the preacher doesn't end here, right? He has another chapter, and it's, all of this is really an alley-oop for where he ends and ultimately brings his thoughts to a close at the end of chapter 12. In verse 13, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the the thing that matters most, that if we would give our lives to these things, that this is going to be the way that we can find joy. Even though life is ambiguous, even though life can be painful, we will have given our life to the thing that matters most, that ultimately is going to last forever, and that is going to secure joy for us. And even this alone is still too much for us. Because face it, if we're all honest with ourselves, like we, we don't have strength or wisdom enough uh, to remove vexation from our heart and the frustration of our, of our, our goals and our dreams. Like we, don't, we can't do that, right? We can't secure for ourselves the, the kind of joy and security that we long for. More than that, we don't have righteousness, righteousness enough uh, to follow the desires of our hearts and of our eyes in a way that doesn't incur God's wrath, let alone uh, follow all of his commands and live a life that is completely submitted to him in the fear of the Lord. We, we don't have that strength in and of ourselves. If the sermon ended now, it would not be joyful at all. It would be all doom. But remember the answer to our question earlier. How does a person enjoy the life that God has given them under the sun? The true joy is found in a life that is given to what matters most. And you see what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to squeeze out of us in his, in his teaching was the same thing that Jesus was trying to get us to see in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus echoes these ideas when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal because where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see it? How does a person enjoy life when it can be so ambiguous and so painful? It's by giving their life to the things that matter most, to Christ and to his kingdom, receiving the salvation that he extends. That is where true joy is found. And notice that in in this offering, Jesus doesn't deny the ambiguity uh, in the pain of life. He says, listen, if, if you make earthly treasure your gain, if that is your good, you'll never know true joy because no matter what you accomplish or how much you accumulate, moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves will break in and steal it. Things here are too unsure and unsteady. It's building your house upon the sand. That's life under the sun. You see how fragile our joy is if it's rooted in earthly assurance and insecurity of joy. It's always under constant threat, but on the contrary, that which we lay up in heaven is unassailable. And we know this to be true because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves heaven and becomes very acquainted with life under the sun. He's the only human being who's ever done everything right the way it's supposed to be done, completely submitting himself to the will of the Father, and his life was still not absent of ambiguity and pain. He'd heal someone and people would despise him for it. He'd stand up for the poor and people would try to kill him. His friends left him. 
The religious elite plotted against him. The masses chose a criminal rather than him. And ultimately, he died a criminal's death on a cross that he didn't deserve. Why would he do that? Like, why would the God of the universe submit himself to that kind of life, full of so much pain? Why would somebody follow someone like that? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has shown us that true joy is found in a life that is given to what matters most. But church, you know, it's, it's even more beautiful than that. He isn't just an example of what it looks like to find true joy, but he is our joy. And he is the security of it and of our salvation. In Ephesians 1, 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, it is Jesus, because of the life that he lived and his death and his resurrection, he removes the vexation from our heart because he gives us a new heart. He removes the pain from our body because he gives us a promise of better things despite the life that we live here. He's acquainted with it. He says, you will have, yes, you will have trouble in this earth, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. We're already conquerors in him. Ephesians 1.13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Church, we may not know all of the works of God and how the spirit comes into the bones of a child in the womb of a woman, but we, if you trust and know and love Jesus, you know something of the mystery of salvation when the spirit of God indwelt us and it turned this body that was dying and was ragged into a living creature, into a new creation. This is the work of Christ, and he is continuing to do that within us until he returns. You see, these realities are in direct opposition to one another. There's a way that we can try to secure for ourselves joy and security and assurance in the things of this earth. And Jesus tells us if we do that, we won't find it. Not only will we not find it, but we'll miss out on the joy and the goodness and the assurance that is offered to us in Christ. But on the other hand... If we would cling and try to find our assurance in the things that Christ has already secured on our behalf, if we would cast our bread to Jesus, so to speak, then even though, as Paul says, we suffer these light and momentary afflictions now, we can have confidence and assurance that even in the midst of that, our inner man is being renewed day by day and that there is an inheritance that awaits us that moth and rust cannot destroy nor thieves break in and steal because of what Christ has secured on our behalf. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The life of following me is a difficult life. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? It's actually by giving, giving our lives to Christ, submitting to him, receiving the salvation that he secured for us, that we find the thing that we've always been looking for. Believer in Jesus, you have no need to secure anything for your own. It has been secured on your behalf. All you have to do is to receive. 
And hear me, there's, there's a number of ways that we give our lives uh, to the things that matter most. The chief being receiving the salvation that Christ offers, not trying to earn it on our own, but by receiving the work um, on his behalf, the imputed righteousness that he secured on our behalf. And another way we respond to that reality is by doing the very things that he's commanded us to do, namely going and making disciples of the nations. This is, this is the thing in our life amongst the hevel. If we want to think about what, what holds the most weight, what's something that through all of life that when I look back, it doesn't just deteriorate and fall through my fingers. It's the investment that we make in people. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he describes this kind of investment, this sowing into those around us and why it's so important in the life of the believer um, for the sake of the kingdom. It's long, but it's, it's so good. He says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. These are the heaven, And their life to ours is as that of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You see, amidst the hevel, the most eternal and weighty thing that you physically experience every day is that of the soul of your neighbor. And the business of discipleship becomes that much more vital. And though life is ambiguous and discipleship is difficult and it's messy and oftentimes painful and it causes you to cast your bread when the outcomes aren't sure, this is the kind of work and the kind of thing that in Christ we've been given to endeavor with that at the end of our lives when we look back, we won't see it as heavy, but it will be worth it. I'll share a story as I close. Um, as some of you know, Chrissy's grandmother uh, has been uh, living with us uh, now for a while. Um, and the other day, just earlier this week, I was sitting in a room with her and she was on the phone with one of her cousins. And I couldn't make out all of the conversation. I only heard one side of it. But what was evident in their conversation was uh, Grandma Lena had made a, a kingdom investment in her cousin's life. Um, and I just remember, uh, Mary, remember hearing that conversation and just being so impacted by it. Uh, Grandma Lena is of the saints in the room who has earned her gray hair. She is 86 years old. Um, and as she would say, uh, you're once a child, and, uh, once an adult and twice a child. Um, and uh, back in earlier, uh, or back at the end of last year, she, she had a stroke that has um, since put her in that vein where she's felt that, that twice the child. Um, but even still, uh, there's just this perpetual grin on her face. Everyone that knows her uh, knows that. 
And I remember after that conversation, she hung up the phone and she was sitting in the wheelchair and she just, that smile came on her face uh, and she kind of looked up. She wasn't talking to me, but I could hear, hear the thought. And she said, only the things you do for Christ will last. Believer, life is ambiguous and it is painful, but there is true joy to be found in a life that is given to what matters most. Because you see, um, the youthfulness of life fades. It's what the preacher's been talking about, right? Like beauty fades, health fades, riches come and go, accomplishments lose their shine, but the things that we do for Christ, the salvation that he's accomplished on our behalf, uh, the work that we do to forward his mission of the kingdom in the world around us, those are the things that even in a life full of pain and a life full of ambiguity, we can turn around and look and we can say, only the things that we do for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, I thank you that you, um, Lord, are such a humble God that you would step down into the heaven and not only demonstrate to us what a life given to what matters most looks like, Lord, but you, in, you invite us into it, Lord God. You secure for us our salvation. You give us the certainty and the security and the assurance that we can't find anywhere in this world. And then, Lord, you, you charge us. You give us purpose and a mission, even amidst the heaven, even amidst the pain, to be about your work as your ambassadors, to herald your truth and your good news so that those around us who, who suffer, Lord God, and those around us who are going through it, we could tell them, hey, there's, there's another way to receive true joy that's not bad for you. There's, there's, there's one way, and it, is, it comes through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord God, will we be a church who uh, clings to that hope, who clings to the assurance that Jesus brings, and will we allow him and his work and his kingdom to be the, the root and the foundation of our joy. God, we love you. See your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.